0: Guardian Unlimited. Hello, you're listening to Guardian Unlimited. I'm Paul Hamelos and today I'm talking to Robert Newman, who will be back on TV next month with his History of Oil. Uh, a funny mix of stand-up and his own personal take on the importance of oil, the war in Iraq and global warming. Hi Rob, how you doing? Alright, thank you, yeah. So what was the genesis of the History of Oil?
1: Um, it came from a, a live show I was doing uh, called Ap- Apocalypso uh, and... Um, and and in that, I'd look at um, the euro-dollar theory of the war in Iraq, which was this g- going around on the net. This idea that um, it was as much to do with the fact that, that Iraq was starting to trade oil in euros and not dollars, and what that would the effect that would have on um, world capitalism. And I was I was looking at that. I was looking at the history of Britain in um, like in Iran and the overthrow of uh, Mossadegh, and. Um, uh, someone told me that John Snow had interviewed Tony Blair about... and Tony Blair had never heard of um, Mohammad Mossadegh, who was the pre- president of Iran, democratically elected one in the 1950s, and you'd think, you know, he would think, well, I might have briefed the Prime Minister on that, uh, here's why uh, these people are pretty angry towards the British, you know, because, um, you know, we overthrew their last democracy they had. And then and then I read the... Uh, but then the the bit... Though I'm most pleased with it and the bit that went really well in the show was a bit about peak oil which was at the end and that came out of reading um uh the parties over this uh um oil war and the fate of industrial societies by um Ah who wrote that now?
0: Was it Heinberg? Richard Heinberg. Richard Heinberg <laughs> wrote that, yeah, and that was really good. And you you, t- you look uh, again as well at the um, at the First World War almost through the eyes of um, the Iraq War now, describing kind of the first British action um, in Basra, rather than this idea that we we were there to defend the plucky Belgium's neutrality.
1: That's right. W- the, the 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 first um, uh, 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 regiment to be mobilised in the First World War was the Dorset, or the first battalion was the Dorset Battalion, and the first battalion of the Dorsets went to Mons in Belgium, nineteen fourteen. The second battalion of the Dorsets went to Basra in 1914. There was nothing about about that on the Dorset's website, and um, and then of course there is the the, the famous graves um, and uh, um, in uh, the, the Iraqi cemetery of all the British dead who um, fell in the, in the First World War. And some people, when you tell them, they just don't the, the concept of the First World War being a, a land grab for oil in the Middle East. People don't believe. But Sir Maurice Hanke, who was um, Cabinet Secretary, he wrote a letter to the Foreign Secretary saying that the uh, Mesopotamian oil has now become a first-class uh, British war aim and we actually one of the things we tried to do in history of oil and it didn't work was to make it the, the world's first ever carbon-neutral TV show because uh, um, we I had this idea because they said to me will there be travelogue and I thought well, what's the point of flying me out to go and stand next to an oil refinery in Houston do you know what i mean like all those things where they have michael palin standing by this place or that place or clive jack Jen- i said why not just fax the script to the mexican guy who sells burgers outside it and he can read it out and this is one of those things that sounds like a great idea in the meeting but when we did that like we like the iraqi thing we got this guy uh to um read out the what well, it's you know my gags <laughs> and uh in at, standing at the british cemetery in Iraq, and he he wrote back saying, "I don't need to go on a, on, on the Atkins diet now because I'm going to lose my head after <laughs> I'm going to, you know, after I've been on this." Um, but it just, and so we had someone in Greece, someone in Jerusalem, someone in uh, Texas, and it just it just didn't look right somehow. It just looked visually the grammar wasn't quite right. Well, I found a different way of doing that in the future. It just looked like there were correspondence on what could be any show, because you know, everyone's seen TV now, so everyone knows the sort of news reporter type of hand gestures to make. And so, uh, so I don't know maybe I've got to post them a hat that they wear, or something, or or like a bit of cloth that's always the same backdrop, or something. It just didn't look quite right. And so it was a shame because I was really looking forward to doing to doing. And th- and there to be a carbon counter in the corner of the show was another idea. And then of course, and you think you've thought of everything. And then, of course, then the the the, the uh, second assistant cameraman arrives in his Humvee on the, the first <laughs> day of recording. I thought, oh, I didn't think of that. <laughs>
0: and you talk a lot as well about the connection between oil and climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one thing that that struck me is, you know, that one of the important things that um, you, um, activists for climate change need to do is kind of really enter the mainstream. And that, did you th- are you concerned that there might be a danger in in presenting certain ideas about why the war in Iraq happened as you know for your suggestion being that it's royal which some might see as a conspiracy theory and therefore a danger of kind of losing some of your audience who you really want to engage on the questions of climate change um
1: well the, the conspiracy theory first of all that's just uh, like a virus that goes round. um people's belief in conspiracy theories is because they cannot uh there's two things they can't understand how complex systems work like capitalism but also they that people cannot accept the idea that no one is in control so they'd rather there was a bad papa and a bad mama rather than no papa at all just 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 ourselves and because therefore we then have responsibility and we can change things um, uh, um, and and there's a question of if people thought the thing that you've just said is nuts do they then think the thing you're saying now is nuts and I don't know I mean you hope that the, each of those things uh stands on its merits but if you I, I think that it's a treacherous and dangerous route and you see ngos go down it of saying well what we really think is this but if we say well look um like like for everybody on earth with who just knows you've got to sort of have a 90 percent reduction in carbon by um next friday if you're serious but you know uh But then everyone gets into this terrible sort of equivocation you can't quite you know that's quote not politically realistic but then there are certain things which are not but everything else isn't realistic in terms of physics or in terms of sort of geology or in terms of you know actual facts of life you know um and and that's and so we live in quite an interesting time when old-fashioned physics will start to become more important than sort of appearance and perception and you know, the the reality, isn't
0: it? And some of these ideas are quite difficult to kind of get across in a a kind of particularly succinct way. One of the parts of the show, um, you talk about what what you describe as a kind of corporate news agenda and that you were asked, for example, to appear on Question Time and you felt that you couldn't do that because you, you risked looking like this kind of lone wolf anarchist anarchist, yeah (laughs) i mean and what why why do you think that is what 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 do you think um of this kind of news agenda and the you know the difficulty for you to get your arguments across in a succinct way
1: yeah it's just that thing uh uh about concision you know if you've only got two minutes you can only say things within a a given framework of understanding so for example people say well uh, we might need this many kilowatts yeah, you know, uh, or Britain uses this many kilowatts of energy. Therefore, how can we supply those kilowatts of energy? And you think, well, you know, in, in you know, without oil. So, and then they say, well, we're going to, have to get nuclear. Well, I suppose you don't, but that means that's only if you want to have a, just as many bright lights outside Asda And Argus says, there are now. What if? But if you think, well, social change not only in and of itself is a good thing, but is necessary now because we live in a totally unsustainable way.
0: Then, um, uh uh, uh um. That, that's going to have to change anyway. And you've been part of um, what I suppose could be loosely described as kind of anti-capitalist movement for for, a, for around a decade. And some of whose ideas have kind of entered the mainstream. You know, what have you seen sort of change in that movement over the, over the last ten years? And, and do you think that there is now a vocabulary that at least you know the general public is quite accustomed to hearing? Wow, that's a that's a big question. I just think
1: there are certain ideas which have suddenly got game currency I mean, you know like it was, it was a bit where the prime minister in question I didn't i never heard of the term food miles and sort of everybody else had and those sorts of things but in other times you think wow there are still lots of people just out buying cars and, and you know and, and, and like at the same time like you know reading the guard you think well there's a sort of consensus but then there's also the, the the advert you know for weekend flights in in Prague or Vienna and mm-hmm. you think that's just uh, nuts you know that's that that kind of you know all there, all uh, uh, Jeremy Clarkson doing this this sort of publicly subsidised advert for the motor industry
0: uh, is completely irresponsible Do you mm-hmm. know I mean? that's just irresponsible so you're and very wary of compromise you don't see these kind of things as incremental you think that there needs to be a kind of um, one well, one doesn't want to say like a large-scale awakening but i have this kind of fear that you know we're all so entrenched in the way that we live that it will take a major event and yeah. by the time that that major event comes you know it probably will be too late the, the the thing that makes us realize that we can't live these unsustainable lives will be the thing which you know is the dying of the light
1: well yeah except major events are happening all over the world at the moment and that is one of the reasons for that uh, Changing people's consciousness that's happening anyway but I, I personally i'm terribly pessimistic i'm in a strange position of not actually wanting to come conv- sometimes i don't want to convince people of my point of view because it's i'm just c- convinced we're doomed and
0: uh, and we've just got to run for the hills you know and um but you, you, in in the program you talk um you make quite a few comparisons with um the collapse of other societies you know the mayans the romans and, um, you know, there have been a couple of books about that in, in recent years, and which sort of begs the question, you know, why why should we be any different? You know, there are remnants from these societies, little bits of writing, that show that there were people who were aware of the excessive strain, you know, over-salination of Mesopotamia or, or, or whatever. And, and do you not think that, inevitably... In this case, once we've destroyed the planet, you know, a future civilization will find evidence of our scientific research and our writing and kind of wonder why we didn't listen to it either. No, quite, well, that's exactly right. That's why it,
1: uh, the, the show I'm working on at the moment, it's actually a, a play with songs, and it's called The History of the World Backwards. And um, so it starts in 2006 and goes goes on and so, and it's kind of, so you can look at the, uh, you know, the American Indians in 1900 beginning a, a program of ethnic cleansing so ruthless, there's no Europeans left on the North American landmass by 1492, and Mandela going in a sweet-natured Spice Girl fan, and coming out an embittered terrorist uh, after his long incarceration. But the reason I was able to do one of the really interesting things about about doing the history of the world backwards is you can look at resource depletion in terms of sort of civilizations, and and um, you can like there's a famous Saudi saying: "My father rode a camel, I drive a car, my son flies a jet plane." his son will ride a camel yeah. and that's that thing is that is that is that the future is going to look very much like the past in that you know well you know there's no, no more oil no long food you know, uh, you know that the carrying capacity of the earth might plummet by about four million as was you know people will have to live closer to fields again um, in some ways there's good things I mean people won't be uh, c- commuting uh very long journeys they won't be working 40 hour weeks and uh no one will be doing a night shift and and they think because these will not be you know we won't have the energy to do those things um but the idea of the energy isn't a given that's the thing people can't get their heads under, mm. that there's going to be less and less net energy every that's that's but and so if we get if we get through this time this bottleneck epoch and come out not too traumatized and with some you know a, a majority of people still still are, are that it could be really good, because you know life would be less impersonal. But mm-hmm. it's you know,
0: and, and you're also very keen on the idea of kind of individual action. Um, you know, the, the idea that we have to take responsibility for for our own um, you know um, carbon footprint, and so you you probably therefore arguing that, that governments can't be the only ones who are responsible for change it's important the governments are doing it and and it's important individuals do it there's limits on
1: ethical consumerism and it's an it's a party that's open to some people and not i mean if you live in a big food desert you know and the the only shop for two miles is in all days unless and you might have time to organize a you know a a a veggie box scheme co-op you know a food cup could supply you food cheaper but it's a lot of work and and
0: so but yeah i think um because at, at the moment, it's still cheaper to um, overheat your house than to properly insulate it. Yeah. Um, and in which case, you know, the sort of changes which we need are only available to the rich or the exceptionally virtuous, which makes it a very a very hard sell. It's very difficult to be green.
1: Well, you can get some technology tra- Yeah, it should be th- this stuff, and I think with the with the web and all that, people will sh- sh- Share technology more cheaply. I'm a friend of mine. She she's saying she got two grand from Camden for solar panels. So you can get this stuff. But then she's one of those people who kind of kind of knows, always works out the runnings of things, and gets into the sort of you know just has that sort of can-do attitude. And and would ferret that out. I mean, I you know, but it should there should be the immediate and free technology transfer? But.
0: And, and, and as well, one of the problems seems to be that, um, you know, it requires a kind of level of self-denial, which is anathema to the way we live our lives at the moment. You know, so that fair product, fair trade products might be good for the producers, but they do a lot of damage being flown over here. You know, there was that big sort of trend for eco-tourism. That's all well and good, but if the eco-tourism's in South America, you still got to fly there. And how, how do we get around that kind of, that problem of self-denial? Yeah, and that's, the, the people... I like mean,
1: there's this movement of sort of voluntary simplicity of people just sort of having less in their lives. Like you know, I don't have a telly and I don't ever, uh, 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 you know, have a car and things. But and and I try only to get second hand clothes apart from underpants. But then I did have a fabulous wardrobe of designer clothes. But before I decided to make this vow, yeah. um,
0: it's the difference uh, between kind of choosing to be minimalist and being poor there are yeah. you know it's it's it's, <laughs> it's you know it's quite, it seems like it's quite easy for the, for the middle class to to make some of these sorts of decisions
1: yeah there's a lot of mexicans living very uh ethically. <laughs> they they rarely fly to ayanafa for their holidays and they uh they don't
0: you know they made the decision not to be two car families but you know but so, so how do we kind of overcome that 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 question because you know it, it strikes me that there's this thing i mean particularly you know we haven't yet mentioned the kind of the big elephant in the room which is china and india the you know their increasing use of 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 um petroleum and and it strikes me that one part of this is we're having to say to china india developing countries you can't have the things we've been enjoying because they're not good for you and how do you overcome that it's- two ways i
1: think that can be done um uh the one way is and it won't last very long but uh, as a vestige of what britain once was uh is that the asian youth like chinese kids from china and japan still come to britain looking for advice about what is cool Mm. and then and hopefully they'll go back and then make a sort of series of eco-kung-fu films or eco, you know, there'll be a new generation of sort of Chinese filmmakers and musicians who will just, who might just make that whole generation make it look like car ownership is the most retro-kitsch, rubbish, western thing. Uh, um, more practically, there are, um, uh, you can make it profitable for, uh, Third World countries not to cut down their forests and not to pump oil. Um, a friend of mine's got an elaborate uh, um, um, theory about this, which I've um, put in *History of the World* backwards. It, um, but ways that, there are various financial mechanisms in which you can make you can reward countries for not pumping oil or or, or, or cutting down the rainforest. For example. Um, at the moment, all the pension funds have got all these liabilities that they want to turn into assets it 's sort of sixty billion pound pension conundrum and the one thing that 's so valuable is government securities and what governments can do is it's southern governments who own the rainforest or the, or the oils they can securitize their the oil well um, by, by issuing fifty year gilts at 038 point thirty eight percent, which then means that the um, that that, that, that the, the country only has to sort of pump 4.38% of of per annum of the oil they would have pumped, which is sort of to pay the bondholders, which is 4% for inflation plus 38%, which is the usual uh, interest rate on 50-year um, gilts, and um, uh, or only you know cut down that many trees, which is a totally sustainable amount of trees to do, and so and so and so instead of just sort of what usually happens like at the moment the Congo is just is just in one big sort of like fire sale just selling the whole lot in one go and they're going to have nothing and it's that it's that way of of keeping your poor you know and once that's gone it's gone and they're they're not getting such a good price so but if you sell it on a 50 year gilt discounted to half the net present value because of um inflation it won't be worth as much in in 50 years or 100 years as now then um then 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 uh that, that could be, especially as the, as you know, financial markets and currencies become much more insta- much more unstable. That could be that could be a way of doing it, and those sorts of mechanisms. You, you know, you think that would be a sort of a that that is one, one way of doing it.
0: That strikes me again, though, that that kind of change requires a change of mindset, which again doesn't seem like it's going to come anytime soon. Because you've you've argued, you know, either that we can have um, capitalism or yeah. or a healthy planet, but not both, and um, you know which leads me to to think america which is both the you know most notorious polluter of the planet but also the home of some of the best ideas in sustainable technology and it strikes me why aren't these companies thinking wow we can make a killing on sustainable technology and because through capitalism they cannot
1: do that other thing like all that thing about the green energy of bp and the green energy shell they are organized they've got to they have to Provide a massive return on capital to their shareholders, and they can't do that through renewables. You bet you can do it through oil. And, um, but, um, I mean, the Chinese are building, people are saying, well, the China aren't, they're not going to develop like, like, like we develop here. They've seen the danger of the West, they're not, but they're building one coal coal fired gas uh, power station every week, every week, and uh, it's, it's, Terrifying, and India and Brazil, and it's. Um, uh, I, don't know, I, I don't know unless nanotechnology can just find a way of just breaking carbon molecules up into little bits and turning them into watercress or something. I, I wish well, because
0: many people would argue that that is the way forward. That that, that um, you know, um, those people who are strongly advocating um, green technologies um, are missing the point, and that it is that it is business that essentially, at its root, capitalism. Will is the best hope because they are the ones who are going to come up with the technologies, and so that we, you know, we're kind of fighting the wrong battle. We should be supporting these companies in their desire yeah, to the, the capitalism is it has to be fought, which is you, you can't have capitalism
1: and, and a sustainable planet, not because it's one reason is because it's predicated on growth and, 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 and growth is is finished. We talk about you know, you talk about how far we are from certain ideas. But the, what's presented to us as the sort of the mainstream consensus—that's that's really far away from reality nowadays. If you look through South America, where you've got one of those big countries, what they call the BRICS, and it? it's Brazil, India, and China—I and think maybe yeah. every single country. This was this there was a laboratory of free market capitalism—has has kicked it out. You know, there's, there's there's sort of, and they don't quite know what they're going to have instead, because not state socialism that didn't quite work. And capitalism was just turned the country into a basket case and um, when Mr Kirchner had George Bush there for the free trade summit of the Americas he said well, you know, we did everything you told us to and that's why our country is a basket case We're pleased, you know, to have you here and we're very interested in what you're going to tell us now And um, you know right the way through Bolivia, Venezuela, you know all of them and 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 so there's something You know n- new happening there and, and a lot of those Changes have come about energy. Whether it's because the Bolivians saying well, we are not going to have our electricity, you know, privatised. We're not going to have the water privatised, and, and and so in some ways maybe we're not so far away from the radical social and political changes n- necessary to to, to, to Except
0: you know. it's very difficult to see evidence of that in, in um, you know particularly in Western Europe. And, and North America, yeah. um, where you know you have lots of people who, if you ask them, they're very keen on the idea of local shops. They're very keen on the idea of fresh local produce. They would, you know, completely understand the point about not buying fruit out of season. And yet, as everybody says, one in eight of every British pound is spent in Tesco's. Although these ideas are kind of common currency, they're not actually how people live their lives. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what, and in some way. You,
1: you, you, you'd hope you could, there could be some sort of state intervention because, or even market intervention because they're massively subsidised supermarkets as well. You know, whether, you know, it's, for example, there's no tax, because there's no tax paid on airline fuel, that's how you can get an apple from New Zealand to be cheaper than the one from up the road. Um, you know, we're building the roads and the infrastructure and giving them, you know, and and, and also if they're getting. And subsidising the wages that the people get from the state sector, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're about. You could argue that that every supermarket in the country to take away all the hidden subsidies is about as sustainable as a Stalinist tractor factory. Mm-hmm. And so, and people say, oh, well, they're natural. You know, it's what people want. It's, what, it's but it's it's just, it, you know, it's just it's just a certain rigged economy that's made it like this and it's grown it's grown up and it's got sort of fused there like a sort of a
0: an arthritic bone but it's not natural mm. but do you, do you think there will be a time um, that um, you know driving an SUV or flying short-haul flights will be seen by by a mainstream audience as kind of as bad as sending children up chimneys because it seems it seems to me that you know whilst it's cheaper to fly for five pounds to Milan than it is to get the train, and obviously more convenient. People will carry on doing that, holding in their head the thought that this is a bad thing that I'm doing.
1: Yeah, it's um, I, I you can see a growing uh, sort of social opprobrium about people who, who um, uh, are c- climate criminals, but um, um but that is the the conundrum if these things are cheaper but of course they're not cheaper because um, you know the, 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 the social costs of you know airlines do not pay their social costs there isn't sort of triple bottom line accounting or full cost accounting they don't pay the ecological costs, and they, again there's massive state subsidies you know all these champions of the free market are massively you know subsidised you know you know, we build their airports and, yeah. and, and uh, uh, you know, and it's coming out of, it's coming out somewhere else. That'll be while your playing field sold off, so you can have this 12-pound flight, you know, and... Uh,
0: and a lot of people um, try and solve their consciences by carbon offsetting, which you have been recently kind of particularly opposed to, um, because it's the, it is this idea that it is actually not doing nothing more than solving your conscience. There's
1: not enough money in the world to offset uh, airline travel you know, if you took all the money from all the treasuries of every government in the world and all the assets and all the gold and put it it's not enough because how, can you f- how, can you, how much will it cost to put Bangladesh on stilts, how much money were you thinking of p- paying as a day rate the workers who were going to be hod carrying ice and snow to the top of the Kilimanjaro which is, de- which is predicted to lose its ice cap totally in 20 years time um, same with the Alps, I think the prognosis is slightly longer but you know, total no no ice or snow up there so then no rivers and uh, that feed off it you know how much is it cost going to cost you to put you know solar powered water sprinklers all the way through the amazon uh, um uh because that's drying out now as well and when that dries out it's going to release all its carbon as well and so it's it's um it's um but there's this massive denial and it's just because everything seemed so normal for mm-hmm. so long and 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 you look around the streets and everyone's, everyone's still sort of shopping and reading Heat magazine and so I must, there must be something wrong with me if I'm thinking that it's all going to... Um,
0: and, and, and saying that, that's, that's this kind of thing about individual action that, that in the end it may well come down to government action because... As so long as you 're relying on individuals not to take those cheap flights, we are going to need some kind of state intervention. Yet there seems to be no impetus for this. I and mean, We just had what um, Gordon Brown would like probably to describe as a green budget but you know and there was there was much play made of um, tax on Chelsea tractors as they describe SUVs or four by fours of which there are more in London than there are in um, rural areas in Britain. but of course, the tax amounted to something like forty pounds a year, and if you can afford a four by four in London. £40 pounds a year is nothing to you. You know, why wasn't it? five grand?
1: Well, Chomsky said this thing about whenever they use the phrase politically realistic, they mean um, something that only the public wants. And what the, the public do want something that's more green, but at the moment they're... they don't want it enough, but also there there is this sort of weird sort of split between where the political kind of agenda's at and where reality's at and where people are at. And I think that the thing that's going to... it will be... F- physical and geological changes in the biosphere that will actually bring those two things together and there won't be this crazy split no more and um because it's th- it's they're in a sort of a narcissistic bubble the politicians they just you know what you know what planet they live on and that's the other thing you get into conv- arguments with people and they say and they say uh aha so you see state socialism was even worse for the environment than capitalism you know look at the aral scene and, you, and, you, and, and then they they say that as if As if that's them out of the argument. They've won the argument. As, as if climate change was happening over there. And, and you think, no, no, you live here. This is where you live as well. There is no planet B. There is no planet B. So let's say, let's say you're at, you're right. All right. I totally agree with you, right? State socialism as a definite fact was much worse. Let's say that for the, for environment and the survival of human species ecologically than capitalism. All right. So now what do we do? Not capitalism, not state socialism. Now what? oh no no no! i won the argument don't you remember i won the argument i'm out of this no you're not you live here there's no planet B, and people cannot they we're so used to being passive spectators Mm -hmm. we're so used to sort of seeing it all happening
0: out there you know you you are in in the history of um very critical of, of the u.s which as we talked about both as a um polluter but also you know the home to some interesting movements and you've you've been on tour there yes um you know did you see anything there that that made you you made you hopeful? And what were your sort of general experiences? How did you go down with crowds in in the US?
1: Well, I, I did a twenty six city tour of the United States, mainly by Amtrak, and the, but I was mainly uh, and it's to promote my novel, The Fountain at the Center of the World. And I was I was usually staying with uh, either the people who run the independent bookstore in that town, or the local anarchist group, or the local anti war group. So my the view of the average American to me is a sort of transgender punk rock dyke with tattoos who just come back from the World Social Forum in Mumbai and um, uh, and there are some you see on on a, America is such a fantastic country of amazing contradictions so you know on one level so there's so many brilliant uh, so on one level you, know, you try and go for a walk in Houston <laughs> you just cut. there's no pa- sidewalks you know on uh, another level there's so many uh, it was a really thriving underground press. And there's so many exciting um, initiatives. Like there was this thing, um, Free Geek in Portland, Oregon. Well, it would be. And it was this thing to, to get rid of the. It was to stop two things. One was the digital divide um, bet- bet- on class and race issues. And another reason is to, is to stop people putting um, computers in landfills because they're difficult to source safely because of the hexavalent chromium and the mercury and the lead and the cadmium and so they kind of it, it kinda leaches out. And what it was, free geek, is if a local kid, you go around and you, when pe- people um, chuck out computers onto the street, they, they take them to this, to this uh, room above this, this shop and, it, and if a local kid from the project or neighbour just comes along and volunteers for a day, she or he goes home with a free computer. And what happens is the geeks work upstairs, and they just turn these this knackered old beige kind of, you know, computer into they just ramp it up and just put it make it like the most Boston, state of the art, multi mega gigabyte kind of powerful computer, and just you know just in their brilliant way, and it works on so many good ways because the geeks suddenly are like know the coolest people in in town, you know, and, and as those kids grow older and the, you know then like it be quite cool they're the one person they get, they let on to and um and it just sort of and so so there's there's positive things like that but then i remember telling them that i that i wasn't flying and they just and for reasons of carbon and they thought i was a bit nuts but at the same time and then i'd stay at someone else's house and and they, i i said oh whose room this and so oh, where is he Why is, is in San Quentin for 20 years because he set fire to an SUV showroom so I you know so um
0: so did and how did them did you have to tailor your material for the audiences did you find they were already a few steps ahead of you or were you talking about ideas that were fresh to American audiences uh
1: no no, I think they were they were they were in a way see in some ways they're more um on some issues they were they were they were much more um there's much more of a debate about those sorts of things at that time. I felt in the United States than there is than there is here, because um it's a big country and big picture politics, you know, fits. Whereas here we just get this. This. I mean, I think Newsnight is an apolitical show. It's it's about this Westminster soap opera, and it's and it's. um They sometimes say, "Oh, this is quite political," meaning it's about court intrigue and little sort of. It's just this. It's it's so petty mm-hmm. and they, and uh, and, um, and if they if you talk about anything in the big picture way they say oh you're editorializing of course it's it's you're not at yeah. all you're yeah. just you're just saying well you know this this is happening over here and and it, let's look at things why is looking at something in a 20 year frame editorializing and looking at something in a 2 hour frame Not, and then it puts you in a ridiculous position. So, like in the BBC, when the the day that the the, the United Nations report condemning Guantanamo came out, the the World at One led with, "Well, how are the UN going to defend themselves from the U.S.'s criticism of their report?" That was it. That was anything. That's just because. Well, that's the most recent thing that happened to this was that the United States criticised it. No, no. The news is that they've said this is tantamount to torture, Mm -hmm. and so and it's this sort of trivialising thing. But I know maybe it's the last throes of an old. Yeah, you know, that small yeah, picture stuff is going to go of,
0: of kind of um you know making a front page out of how do we feed the world in 50 years uh, you know those those sorts of issues you know newspapers tv broadcasters radio broadcasters aren't accustomed to dealing with those kind of questions you know it's much more the kind of day-to-day of of politics and, and i i do think that they you know we're going to have to get used to these kind of ideas but you know whether we'll show any particular aptitude for them
1: yeah it should be more interesting though shouldn't it i mean th- these are pretty insignificant people you're members of the cabinet i mean they're not you know uh, really powerful and they're not interesting they're not fascinating people mm-hmm. but i know what you mean sometimes you could think you see a front page, pacing well i'm really glad someone's doing this but uh, you know <laughs> reading it it'll be like eating eight crackers with no water
0: but you must find that too though because you know how do you write how do you write comedy about politics? I mean, how do you write comedy about the politics of climate change? That's not an obvious kind of crowd-pleaser.
1: It's a creative challenge. Um, that's true. And um, uh, and as, as you were saying earlier, most people's way of doing it would be just to sort of ironically be saying, oh, isn't it a good thing? Ha-ha-ha. But then there's so much stuff of... Although, there's so many shows where... Uh, a kind of reaction, sort of knowingly reactionary, knowingly ironic shows uh, where they they, they, they they present themselves as iconoclasts and what they're actually doing is just it's, it's the dominant position. They say hey, I don't care who, you know, I'm, I'm going to stick my neck out and so say I actually like Starbucks Think, they're on every high street or they say yeah I'm in favour of cars, yeah shoot me as if they're these brave kind of iconically i think kind of you know, that's just you yeah. you are the man yeah, yeah. You, you you know you not only you know, that's just you just they're in power you know you're you know and 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 um and so it's a it's a creative challenge but i think you know um when you set yourself limits and you can uh, forces you to make a kind of imaginative progress you couldn't have done beforehand you think that well, that's that's, that's a, a you know a creative because your
0: shows are quite um you know they're, they're based on a lot of research which is not to make them sound dry but you know you, you do provide the audience with a lot of information which at times you're kind of having to drag them with you how how does that work how do you get people to engage with the idea of, of you know your euro dollar theory of um, yeah, yeah. of the Iraq war
1: well sometimes a comedy can come out of the fact that it's it, it, the relationship with me and the audience is clearly under strain by this and that and that and that um uh and that I may have uh, taken on something that I don't quite have the competency to pull off, and um, and uh, and about getting lost in the middle of it, and then and and so it's a question of tone.
0: Um, um, and what lies next for you?
1: Um, well, it's history of the world backwards. I think we're going to do it at the um, at the tricycle. I originally was going to do it in June, and I suddenly realised the World Cup of football was <laughs> in June, and so I don't think I will. So and he offered it to me in May as well, and I said I hadn't written it then. and I thought no, I, I can't. I won't have it ready then. And I did write really quickly after I'd said no, but I, but maybe I wouldn't have written so well if I'd known I had this big deadline. So I think in the autumn I'll do it at the tri school, and then uh, and then I'm hoping it will transfer the like Broadway and uh, the <laughs> West End. <laughs> but
0: do, do you see that as part of your of your kind of? Um, mission, if we can call it a mission, to get these things out to mainstream audiences. Yeah. Because it seems, you know, there is a danger of almost kind of preaching to the converted with um, this kind of stuff. And actually what needs to be brought out is that these are very normal, sensible ideas.
1: There's two things about the, 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 yeah, exactly. The preaching to the converted thing is, as soon as you start talking about, well, what do we do about it, you realise there's no consensus at all. And on the other, the other hand is, it's this idea of what is normal, and it, it sometimes. If, every, if everybody else is not talking about peak oil and not talking about climate change and not talking about uh, you know resource depletion and, and sort of uh, 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 the, and pollution then, then you think well these aren't important things then and it's only when you can be in a room with people all feeling the same way that can give you strength to, of your own convictions because you just if people who have come to these clues themselves and then dismiss them because they thought well I don't want to be na- uh, the weirdo in the, in the lane
0: Um uh um. And do you feel that you're part of a kind of movement of, of um, comedians because there was, you know, there was a lot of talk that the political stand-up that was popular in the 80s and 90s had, had really died away um, but now, you know, principally probably since September the 11th there has been this kind of regeneration of, of, of political stand-ups do you feel like there, there are a few of you, there, of you out there kind of giving each other encouragement?
1: I felt like yeah when I went on tom- on tour with Mark Thomas um, we did fifty dates together last year and I felt yeah that's someone you know we approach it in different ways and we talk about slightly different things but um, but yeah I, that that's someone ploughing a similar furrow and uh, um, and you know Michael Moore to an extent as well and 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 it feels less lonely just the fact that films like mclibel or morgan spurlock's film are being made you know just just that there's this um and what's good about that is that on is it allows something like the history of oil program to be made because before especially on tv they're saying well you've said this but you've also got to say completely the opposite as well so you know and um and they're still doing that on on radio 4 they still sort of say well here's someone speaking that climate change is happening he's someone he's like one of the three people in the universe mm-hmm. who we can find who's actually paid by an oil company to come and say it's not just because we've got to have you know you know uh, and you know, uh, this antithesis you think not anymore you know what i mean it's like you know
0: would it be a bit like doing kind of football reporting and saying you know Everton are playing Liverpool this week and of course in 1923 yeah. Everton <laughs> lost 3-1 to Liverpool as though that had any kind of impact or exactly. relevance to the, yeah, to the yeah. current match
1: so but it means that you can make a sort of polemical programme from one point of view well you know uh, um, but I don't really feel too much I do feel like I'm out on a limb doing, doing the, my own little thing um, um, uh, um, like somebody who makes curiously Shaped pots in a small shop in Cornwall, um, rather than being part of a movement, really. Because um, I think a lot of what passes as so-called political comedy isn't really political. It's just about this sort of given agenda of it's just sort of about these sort of personalities. And um, but at least people are having to notice the existence of an outside world nowadays.
0: Well, Robert, thanks very much for coming in to join us. And you can join Robert out on a limb by watching his History of Oil on Wednesday, April the 12th at 9pm on More 4.
1: I didn't know that was when it was on until this very moment. Right, oh, that's good.